How's everybody doing today? It's coolish. We're working on it, I promise. Um, so excited to dive into the scriptures with you this morning into Matthew 5. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is a text that we uh, have, if we're being honest, like trouble relating to in some ways. Like when the scriptures talk about persecution as Americans in the West, we actually don't know much, don't know uh, what to do with that quite exactly. But I want to uh, share just a, like a bit of a story. This week even, I had a friend send me a video of a man in Saudi Arabia who had converted from Islam to Christianity, and he was being tried uh, to figure out what was the state, what was the Islamic state going to do with him. Because in Saudi Arabia, it's illegal to follow Jesus. It's illegal to live, leave the Islamic faith and join the Christian faith. And he wasn't just following Jesus. He was like so excited about the good news. He was out on the streets proclaiming. And so his, his in-laws, his mother-in-law and father-in-law turned him into the authorities to be prosecuted as a man who is following Jesus. And so his, his court case was actually just this last week, two weeks ago, June 3rd, and he was fined $80,000. Uh, he had to pay $80,000 within 30 days or he was going to be sent to jail uh, for an undisclosed amount of time. And so while we in the West uh, don't quite know what to do with this passage, um, sometimes we forget that like persecution is actually rampant across our globe still. This last year, these, this last 12 months, let me, let me get this number correct because every single life matters, 4,761 Christians were killed for following Jesus. 4,761 lives were, were taken because they chose to follow and proclaim Jesus. The number of Christians killed in Africa rises 2.5% year over year over year. For 20 years, North Korea has ranked first in the world as the most difficult and most persecuted place on the planet for someone to follow Jesus. But one of the interesting things that we often see with persecution from a global perspective is when persecution increases, often like the kingdom breaks in as well. We see this in the very early church when, when, people, when Rome began to kill Christians, people began to look on and say, oh, if you're willing to die for this thing, you will not renounce or recant your faith in Jesus. It actually must be something worth living and dying for. Right now, um, in Iran, the church, the Christian church in Iran is like booming, Five years ago in 2016, it was said that there's 100,000 Christians in Iran. Today, there's somewhere between 800,000 and a million Christians in Iran. Like Jesus and his spirit are on the move in particular in these persecuted places. And, and often when we talk about persecution, we think of like violent persecution, which belongs. That's absolutely a part of the conversation. Um, but sometimes what we need to understand is like anytime a person experiences hostility for following the person in the way of Jesus, that is persecution as well. 
So while one may be more extreme than the other, we must like also understand uh, as we come to this text, like what persecution actually is. Persecution is when you experience hostility for following the person in the way of Jesus. And so while it takes different forms, in the West it takes a, a, a unique form where it's not so much violence as it is like silence, as it is like left out on the social margins, as it is like not included in the social circles, being cut off because you're like one of those weird people who follow Jesus. And so as we come to the text and as we look at the scriptures, um, we very intentionally want this passage to form our community. We, we want the Sermon on the Mount, we want the Beatitudes to form our community. And so often we, we like take a teaching, or at least I take a teaching, um, where we come up here and share God's word on Sunday, and we want to like capture so much understanding in that. But some of the reality is like the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount, the scriptures, this is a like long formation process over the course of a lifetime. We actually, like, while we, we will finish this year teaching the Sermon on the Mount, we never leave the Sermon on the Mount. If you've ever played a sport, like, you always go back to practicing the fundamentals of that sport. You never, you never graduate from those things. And in the same way, we do, our community looks at the Sermon on the Mount, and we look at the Beatitudes, and we, we never hope to graduate from them. We never hope to think like we've accomplished these things and we're done, let's move on. So we will conclude teaching them at some point by the end of the year, I promise. Um, I know we're going slow, that's intentional, uh, but we hope to actually never, we never leave them. So while we move to a different text, the Sermon on the Mount always lives with us and in us and inside of us. I was talking with a friend this week um, and she said, what's beautiful about setting the Sermon on the Mount is you, like it either calls you to change. When you listen to the teachings of the Sermon on the Mount, you either change or you leave them. Like those are the two choices as we come to this text that it either changes us or we like ignore it and move along from it. And so as a community, we intentionally lean in slowly to allow the Sermon on the Mount, the words that Jesus shares to form the like DNA and culture of who we are as people. And these lines from Jesus that round out the Beatitudes, they announce good news that actually feels like bad news, at least to us in the West, because persecution is not something we experience all that often. We are so sanitized from the reality that following Jesus costs something. This is not like a, uh, this is not an add-on to your life. When you started following Jesus, you don't just like sprinkle Jesus on a bit, and that's what following him looks like. It looks like rebuilding a life all together. Mark and I were talking about that earlier. Like, we need to do away with the idea that we just add a little Jesus into our lives, and we need to come to the scriptures and rebuild our life around them. And so as we come to this verse, these verses, blessed are you when they revile and persecute you, and they say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my name's sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, 
for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. When we come to this text, we must first come realizing that the in the West, in America, it has not been until recent that our faith has ever been viewed in like a negative light. Historically, the Christian faith in the West has been viewed always in a positive light. And what seems to have happened over the last decade or two is, is uh, historically we've had a positive light in public spaces of serving and following Jesus. And over the last couple of decades, we've sort of exchanged that. It seems a few decades ago we took our place of influence within the public square as we championed and demonstrated following Jesus a better way to life, a better way to be human, a better way to live. And we began to take that influence and we manifested that influence into like power where we began to like legislate by biblical conviction. And while some of that is not bad, I would gladly support legislation that protects and champions human life from womb to tomb. But with that exchange, when we began to take that power and legislate it, we actually lost our influence. And our power became politically oriented rather than kingdom oriented. So we come into the new millennium where the Christian agenda has become synonymous with political power. In exchange, we, we no longer are seen as people with a better way to live. We're seen as like people who hold a specific moral set of convictions. Christians are no longer seen as people who, uh, people who love really well or people who abide in grace and truth, uh, we're seen as hypocrites. We're seen as, as people who demand that others believe and live the exact same way we do. And whether that is right or wrong, justifiable or not, it has cost us space in the public square to share our faith openly and honestly with others. We move from a position of influence to a position of power, and with that power, people stopped listening. Hear this, church. With that power, people stopped listening to the Christian's voice. They stopped listening to our critique against culture or, or our pushback on sin. They stopped listening because Christians began to impose the way of Jesus. Not by you choosing to follow him, but us demanding, us legislating that you abide by the right moral code. And the aroma of what it meant to be a Christian in this country has shifted quite a bit. And it's something we all feel. You see, we have lost favor in the world to the point where our, our witness, our faith, often no longer matters because of the baggage the words like evangelical and Christian now carry. When people find out I'm a Christian, when I'm in life with others and they don't know uh, that I follow Jesus, and then one day they find out their, their questions are never about Jesus. Their questions are never about like the scriptures. The questions are, how do you treat gay people? The questions are, how do you deal with like racial controversy and racial injustice? The questions are, what do you do for the poor? It seems like Jesus talks a lot about the poor. Is your life oriented toward caring for the poor in any way whatsoever? 
What they're asking about is, is my faith a cognitive belief that I ascribe to, or is it something that's put into action right where I am? Is it this ethereal, like, mental conviction that Jesus died and rose again, or have I built a life around the person and the way of Jesus? And usually, if I'm being honest, what they're trying to do, they're trying to figure out, like, which political tribe do you align with? Do I align myself with, a, like, a belief that's progressive or a belief that's conservative? And what we must recognize as we seek to faithfully follow Jesus is that he does not, he refuses to fit into either category. He is not a like middle ground between the political right and the political left. He, he, he's not like, let's bring the best of, best of both worlds together in the middle. Jesus is like a unique third option that champions the way of the kingdom. And he's not sorry for it. And neither should we. So what's, what's interesting is culture knows what to do when someone is not of their tribe, of their political tribe, of their ideological tribe. We actually, like, culture knows how to treat people that aren't like us. Usually it's with distance, not with conversation. What culture doesn't know what to do is when someone doesn't fit any tribe. When you refuse to answer the complex, nuanced questions about humanity following Jesus or God reconciling humanity to himself and all of the complications and nuance that comes with that, when you refuse to answer that with a simple yes or a simple no, but an invitation to a conversation to talk about like the roots behind the symptoms of humanity's problems. You see, when we follow Jesus, historically speaking, and potentially speaking of our future, like Jesus, uh, we share with him suffering and persecution. And the reason this is so important for the church today is because as our culture becomes more polarized, which I think it will, and it becomes more complicated for Christians to exist in socially defined categories, which I also think it will, we must be sure about whom we love and whom we serve. Tim Keller, author, pastor, like genius. Tim Keller describes convictions and the witness of the early church being uniquely formed around five things. In, in, in specific terms, in like a social category. These five things are racial justice, caring for the poor, not returning evil for evil, caring for the unwanted newborn or the abandoned child, and holding to a traditional view of marriage. Now, of these five things, two of them seem like they actually belong to the political left, racial justice and caring for the poor. And two of them seem like they belong to the political right, caring for the, the unborn or the newborn and a traditional view of marriage. And frankly, no one in culture, no one takes evil and does not return evil. No one has a civilized conversation in the middle. And so may we, like the early church, not, not ascribe to a tribe, 
but ascribe to a unique third way of the kingdom that doesn't take like one of these or two of these or three of these, that we become a community of the spirit that's built around demonstrating all of these convictions to the world. That we care about life, not just, not just in inception and in womb, but that we care about the single mother with two kids just as much. That we care about the poor and the oppressed and those that are marginalized in our community for a number of different reasons. Lord, forgive us for thinking that we know why they're marginalized. We know why they're oppressed without ever hearing their story. Forgive us from that, Lord. And so culturally, it feels like this unique third way is going to become narrower. It's going to become harder to walk that path. This unique third option of following Jesus and championing his kingdom is is accepted for now, but it feels like that window is actually closing in some regards. It's getting smaller. And I actually believe that over the future of the church, that, that the church will diminish in some regards, that we will grow smaller, but we will grow deeper. We will grow deeper roots that are more convicted to the scriptures, more convicted to follow the person in the way of Jesus, more convicted to bring about the like flourishing of God's kingdom wherever we, sit, wherever we see fit wherever God sees fit, wherever we see possible. So when we come to this text at the end of the Beatitudes, let us not think of the last 10 or 20 years. Let us think of the next 10 or 20 years. Seeing that it is likely that it will become more clear who we follow And that we follow him with love and conviction and truth and grace. And as that happens, again, I think, I think the acceptable window of the radical Jesus follower that is oriented to the kingdom alone, I think that window is smaller. The idea that we will be insulted and persecuted for our faith may not exist now or may not in your experience exist, but it also is not that far off. It's not far off, and and in fact, it's already happening where a 15-year-old who goes to health class in a public school sits alone because they champion like a a biblical definition of marriage and gender. That That is, like, that's not on the doorstep, it's here. So this like championing, believing in the scriptures and following Jesus is going to bring about conflict with our secular culture. Pastor John Tyson posed the question recently and it broke my heart in the best way possible. What if this last year was the easiest year for Christians from now on? What if this last year was the easiest year for Christians? from now on. So it is right as a new church and a new community of the Spirit that we begin to orient ourselves to this potential future reality that's not this like thing we're making up, but it exists in the scriptures where Jesus says, if you follow me, surely they will persecute you. 
To be clear, that does not mean that we should act like we're being persecuted when we're not. You see, I have never experienced violence because of my faith. I've felt left out a couple times. But it feels as though now is the time to root ourselves in preparation for the direction that culture is headed. Whether we experience an onslaught of insults and evil things set against us, it is right for us to take the scriptures uh, and understand them to like root ourselves in the person of Jesus, to abide in the vine, as he says in John 15, that we as, as followers of him like are deeply rooted people to God's truth and to God's presence, to bring about goodness and love in the world the way that God defines those terms, not the way our secular culture does. In 2 Timothy, Timothy, in 2 Timothy 3, it says, verse 12 through 14, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evildoers and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. As for you, Continue in what you have learned and become convinced of. Continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of. Or in John 15, this is right after Jesus talks about abiding in him. Jesus says this, if you belonged to the world, it would love you. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you or like, picked you or plucked you out of the world. And that is why the world hates you. Verse 20, remember what I told you, a servant is no greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. I think it is important to remember when Jesus is, is on earth, when he's having these conversations, the people that are persecuting him more than any other are the religious elite. And to be honest, I, like I quite literally, I don't know what to do with that. I don't know what to do with that reality that the religious elite are the ones persecuting Jesus. And I don't know what that means for today. I, I just don't know. It, it may be something similar, but come under a different guise called Christianity. It may come under a guise under a different name, but we must understand that the most religious people, and usually this coincides with power, are usually those who attack the Christian faith. And this is an important reality to be mindful of. So the question then is, what do we do if this is our future reality? What do we do if persecution becomes a normal part of the Christian experience while we live in a secular culture? Much like the prophets of old, we are called to embody God's truth in God's presence to his people. In the Old Testament, the role of a prophet is to be someone like who foretells and foretells the truth about who God is in his heart for people. And these, these prophets were tested about their predictions. 
what they said would come true. And, and so they're given authority to speak on behalf of the Lord as they've earned that authority. But also prophets are people, um, prophets are people who regard as, regarded as those that are willing to embody and proclaim truth in the midst of life's circumstances. So, so this, this invitation that I'm describing, like we're invited to be a prophetic people that embody and adhere to God's truth in that alone and then just like live into that reality. Abraham Heschel, um, a Jewish author, says, a prophet's true greatness is his ability to hold God and man in a single thought. And this church, this is why we do everything that we do, that we might become people that hold God and man together in the same thought. This is a new orientation for much of us that we don't just think of God and like push away humanity, or we don't just think of humanity and push away God, that we, we bring both of those into our mind together. And trust me, I understand how difficult that is. This is a new way of living and being human. It's also the reason that like at River and Way, we do everything that we do. It's the reason we start prayer uh, before we gather. It's the reason we started to pray a year before we ever launched this church. It's the reason we stopped to share songs and stories about what Jesus is doing in our community and around us. It's the reason, like Jackie announced earlier, we say no to gathering in this way and yes to being present to the people outside of these walls. It's the reason we can't wait to get into house churches together to be committed to showing up regularly and intimately as, as representatives of Jesus together that we might grow in Christ's likeness together. It's the reason we gather under the scriptures and toward the bread and the cup. You see, the, these decisions, these formational pieces of River and Way, like we don't think about them just surviving this year. We think about like, how is this going to form our community 10 years, 20 years, 30 years from now? When we talk about planting this new church, it's not a church for us. It's a church like for the inheritance of our children. That's what Jesus is getting after. So when we come to this text at Matthew 5, while we may not have a ton of experience with persecution, this needs to become a normative part of the conversation as secular begins to reject Christians more and more and more. Pastor John Mark Comer out of Portland says, we are people of the future in the present. I'm going to say that again. We are people of the future in the present. And what he means is that we are people that know the like, we know the back end of the human story. We know that Jesus wins. We know that God is reconciling the world to himself. And so we take that truth that, that God tells us, that he reveals to us, we take that truth and we live into the truth of that story today. We allow that truth to form in us the way we live in everything that we do. We prophetically lean into what God is saying is true. 
and we live that out as our human experience to the rest of the world. The complexity of stepping into the prophetic picture, though, is it's not easy to identify like who we are becoming. But the reality is that if culture trends this way, if it continues down this trajectory, then our experience and our persecution, the insults, the rejection in public, the evil that is spread amongst us, those spaces will only heighten. And so we must do the hard work of, of learning from the scriptures, of learning from Jesus, of rebuilding our lives so that we can withstand this reality so we can withstand this, like, uh, where the, the secular story is going. So that we can be faithful to Jesus in those spaces. Jesus points out in verse 12 that the Old Testament prophets were rejected by their people. And, and if you know anything about the Old Testament or if you spend any time reading it, you see that, like, very often the norm is that the people don't listen to the prophetic voice amongst them. There's one time that's clearly not true. Um, it's the prophet named Jonah. Um, and his story is super interesting. Go home and read it. He didn't want to be a prophet. He didn't want to carry God's good message to the people of Nineveh. Um, he jumps off a boat, long story short. But, um, but he ends up in Nineveh and he proclaims this message, which is like seven words, I think. And the people of Nineveh respond in repentance to God. And then Jonah gets mad that God shows them grace. That is not the normal story of a prophetic voice. The prophetic voice is often outcast and not included and not listened to. Jesus describes it again as they killed the prophets who were before you. And again, let me remind you in our sanitization of this in the West, there are people being killed all over the world because of the prophetic voice pointing to Jesus in culture. And while I don't want to mislead you that we are anywhere near the state of like where the man um, in Saudi Arabia is, or, uh, or even where the Old Testament prophets are, I do believe that we need to awake our hearts and our souls to this coming reality. Not out of fear, not out of fear, but out of the building up of our faith and courage to follow Jesus. Because if it doesn't come, and we built up the courage to faithfully endure as we cling to Jesus, we will be the better for it. But if it does come, and we don't build up the courage, we don't build up the faith to endure the name of Christ, the journey becomes much harder, and we may be people who do not faithfully serve Jesus in that time. You see, there is a, a big difference between surviving the chaos of culture around you and serving Jesus faithfully in the culture around you. And we must do the work. We must understand who Jesus is and what he's done on our behalf, what he's called us to in order to walk faithfully. There's so many temptations of the world, temptations of, of people, temptations of our friends, uh, 
They want to like drag us away from following Jesus. First Peter 3 verse 14, 13 and 14 says, Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Peter's kind of like recanting what Jesus says here at the end of the Beatitudes, that if you are harmed for doing good, you should suffer and be blessed. So in our hearts and in our lives, we must grow in revering Christ. We must grow and revere the person of Jesus. And one of the ways, church, that we need to awaken ourselves to is we need to stop watering down the severity of sin in our lives. We have compromised so much as the church that when it, when it comes to sin, there is less and less and less distinction between followers of Jesus and the world around them. Let us remember that sin is violent and it is vile. The book of James says when sin grows up, it becomes death. So the next time you're tempted to engage in that sinful behavior or sinful pattern, fully realize that what you're, what you're actually doing is participating in your own demise. That your sin is killing your soul. And as Paul describes it, it is like we we're putting on the chains to be enslaved again. They're putting on the chains to be held captive again. And so what we, what we must do is realize that this sin that we participate in is, is not okay. It's not okay to God. And it's not okay for his church to dirty herself and then come to the bridegroom, come to Jesus and act like the, the gift of grace that we have that he laid down his life for is not a big deal. It is a big deal. Jesus' grace that covers your sin is a big deal, and we should treat it as so. Sin is a big deal before a holy God, and we should treat it as so. Because we must mature not just in the, not, like not in the ways of this world, but we must mature in the ways of Christ. We must let go of like holding on this image that's like, if I could just be a little bit better than culture. That's not what Jesus is calling you to. He's calling you to rebuild a life centered around him and follow him. Because when people begin to slander you, your, your job, your Christian responsibility is not to make sure Facebook knows you're right. Your job is to make sure the world knows who Jesus is by the way you respond, by the way you love your enemy, by the way you don't seek to make much of yourself, by the way you lay your life down. And the only way we're going to grow into a people who respond like that is by making clear in our own hearts the essentials of what the Christian faith are, like, like what does this actually teach me to do for life? And to know where we stand and to ensure that like, we're actually not the religious elite, that we step forward with mercy before we do with rules, that we step forward with grace and with truth, that we are not casting undue guilt and persecution on others. You see, in a culture that's, that's as secular as ours is, people are not knocking down the door to come to church. 
But I will tell you, like, deep in their heart, they are looking for a way to actually be human and live. And they may not come here to find that. It may be in your living room or around your dinner table. It may be at Starbucks or on a walk with your friends. This last uh, week, I was having coffee with a friend who lost his, like, friend group, his closest friends, for leaning out of a certain stream of Christianity and into another one. So while he is not dying for his faith, he is being spoken, uh, evil is being spoken of him by others because of his desire to lean into God's heart more and away from a certain interpretation of the scriptures. This is the like, we need to be mindful that we can become the religious elite too. And the only way to not become the religious elite is allow our hearts to regularly abide in the presence of Jesus and to adopt his character and integrity and the way he views people. You see, part of the question that Jesus elicits when he, when he asks this is what is the cost that you are willing to endure to follow him? What type of social pressure would it take for you to turn your back on Jesus? And remember, Peter, who's a part of the inner circle of, of like Jesus' team, who walked with Jesus, it took a like teenage girl coming up to him when Jesus was in a hot spot for Peter to turn his back on Jesus. And so we, we must become awake to the reality that it probably doesn't take as much as we think it would for us to deny following Jesus. And it's time that we like dig deep and do the work to root ourselves to the person of Jesus. That we would not, we would not compromise the truth of who he is or that we follow him. Or maybe, maybe said another way, are you building a life around Jesus that your faith could endure intense persecution? If you were being persecuted for following Jesus, um, would you denounce him? Would you deny him? Or would you uh, be willing to choose to please God rather than man, even if your life were on the line? And that feels so far away and it, it feels so hypothetical because that's most of our experience. But at a heart level, that's quite literally the question we need to wrestle with. If all of the things that we love about living in the West, if the good coffee and the good beer and the friends and being close to Yosemite and Disneyland, if those all went away, because we followed Jesus, would you still follow him? Being connected to a community, eating good food, all those things, if they all stopped, if you were imprisoned for your faith, would it be worth it to follow Jesus? Would your allegiance to Jesus remain if all of the blessing that comes with following Jesus, if all the blessing stops, would your allegiance remain? The promise on the backside of this verse at the end of Matthew 5 is that uh, those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. When we, when we choose to faithfully abide 
to faithfully serve Jesus in the midst of persecution. There's a, there's a unique invitation in the same way at the beginning in verse 3 where it says, blessed in the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There's a unique invitation that we get to participate in the kingdom of heaven. That we identify our suffering, not just as like this person alone on an island, but we identify our suffering with Jesus, that we get to identify with him. So many of his followers in the early church were like, they weren't, they weren't proud. Proud's not the right word, but they, were, uh, they considered it joy to suffer in the name of Christ. And it feels like as a, as a church in the West, we are far away from that moment. It is an inconvenience to suffer for the name of Christ. And so may the Spirit awaken our hearts to the reality of being identified as a Christ follower and sharing in his suffering is something that we could begin to learn to find joy in. And the truth is that I don't know what's coming. I don't know what 10 years looks like or 20 years or 30 years. I don't know what sort of evil might exist for Jesus' followers at that time. But I do know that we I do know that we need not fear it because God is with us. I do know that we need not fear it because God is for the people who persecute, who are persecuted by the world. I do know that the invitation for us in this moment is to abide while the weather is nice, while we're planted in like churned soil, that we would abide in that time that we might take a different sort of root for the fruit that might need to grow in the years ahead. You see, when the storm comes, if it does, church, we ought to be prepared because Jesus talks about it frequently that persecution comes for those that follow him. And so while in the past we may have gotten a pass, it is right that we prepare for what Jesus talks about is the cost of following him. I'm going to read First Peter 2. Um, we're going to close here, and then we're going to pray. I'm going to read it slow. Or if you have a Bible, let's go ahead and open it to First Peter 2, verse 19. First Peter 2, 19 says, for it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you leaving you an example that you should follow him in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this teaching. Thank you for the truth that 
um, those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, those that are persecuted for following you, for bringing about justice in the world, for walking in, in like dedication to you, Lord, um, that the kingdom of God is theirs. So we pray that while like persecution in particular, violent persecution feels so far off from us, that we would not neglect the like maturation process that takes place in becoming more like Christ and identifying with Christ, countering, counting it suffering to participate in the like hardship of following Jesus. May we be awakened to the cost of following you. God, we pray for Adam in Saudi Arabia. Pray for the men and women across the globe who are violently persecuted for following you, Jesus. Pray that they would have courage and strength and endurance to abide in your goodness and your love. We pray the same thing for us, that, that we would learn to have strength and courage and boldness as we abide in your presence and your love. Jesus, would you do that for the church? Would you do that for our hearts and our community? We would grow into a resilient people being formed by you more than anything else. Committed to, to truth and grace is a manifestation of Christian love just like the person of Jesus. We love you. We worship you. We pray these things in Jesus' name.